The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Our guest today is Mike Glauser. He's an author, entrepreneur, and business consultant. During his career, he's worked with hundreds of startup companies as well as large corporations. And in 2014, Mike rode his bike 4,000 miles across the country to interview 100 entrepreneurs who've built remarkable companies doing what they love. And that journey resulted in his latest book called Main Street Entrepreneur. And today we're going to talk about journeys. We're going to talk about Mike's entrepreneurial journey and about this extraordinary journey that he took across the country, discovering how other entrepreneurs have built thriving businesses and achieved financial independence. And you're going to learn about this as well. So welcome to the show today, Mike. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Uh, what a wonderful story, and, and I'd like to start at the beginning with yours. You were uh, you went to school uh, and learned about organizational effectiveness. You consulted on that for a while, and then you're like, I, I have to do this myself. Well, I was so fascinated with the study of organizations as a college student. Uh, um, I just wanted to learn all about leadership and how you design and build a successful organization. You know, how do you build something that's the envy of an industry? So that interest took me straight through my graduate program. I got a PhD at Purdue University, and I was still, I was 27 years old, and I started teaching at the University of North Carolina. And uh, almost immediately, I decided I needed to go out into the world and do business if I was going to be a business professor someday. And it was really in the first MBA course that I taught, I walked into the room, and I had a lot of bravado from getting a PhD, and I wrote my name, Dr. Glauser, on the board and turned around and I was horrified that I was the youngest guy in that room by probably 15 years. So this was uh, like an executive MBA program, and they were all out of the furniture industry, the insurance industry, the tobacco industry in North Carolina. And I was this kid who knew a lot about you know, organizational theory, but they knew a lot about organizations. So I said, if I'm going to become a thought leader in this field, if I'm going to learn how to start and build organizations and how to lead organizations – I got to go out and do it and practice what I've been preaching and, and see if I can. So I was a little, it was a little frightening to leave academics. I stayed for four years and then I went out and uh, started to build a company. And the goal was to build something that would be, you know, a phenomenal country in a, a certain niche and that people would look at and say, wow, these guys do it the best, best of anyone. And mm -hmm. So that's what I did. Okay, and that was was that the Golden Swirl Management Company. The uh, it, it was an ice cream that had no fat, as I recall. Uh, help me with that. It was a and you combined with your wife because she had a background in medicine or nutrition or something that helped you with that. Is am I on yeah. the right track there? Yeah. Yeah, we uh, you know we did what I taught. We looked at you know a lot of businesses. We looked at three different opportunities. And then we looked at what skill sets were needed for those opportunities, and we looked at what she was great at and what I was good at, and we picked this, you know, the, kind of the nutrition health food industry because that was her background. And what we wanted to do, we thought, you know, it was kind of the time uh, there in the 80s where 
you know, people were into getting into health food, but it was kind of a pseudo health food interest. They weren't <laughs> yes. weren't really willing to compromise taste, but they wanted to say, "Hey, I'm eating healthy." Mm-hmm. And so we thought, you know, what if we could create a frozen dessert product, an ice cream or a yogurt that tasted as good as you know Hagen Dazs or Ben and Jerry's, but we had removed all of the fat from that product and then and had uh, you know a number of health advantages, and that it actually tasted good because at the time people were starting to introduce a a yogurt product, and it was it was so bitter, you'd you'd gag it down, but you'd feel good about yourself because you were eating something healthy. But the product, it, it tasted like mm-hmm. it could remove the chrome off the bumper of your car. I remember you know, that actually. You remember those days yes. in the eighties and nineties. I do. So we uh, we hired a fellow I met at Purdue University who had a degree in, in microbiology, and he had been working at the National Dairy Board, and we just put our heads together, all of us, and we started. Uh, innovating this product line and it it turned out to be very very successful the name of the product was northern lights Mm -hmm. and then we retailed that product in a number of stores called uh, we had various labels golden spoon golden swirl so we designed and developed the products we manufactured the products we distributed the products we wholesaled the products and we retailed the products so we were vertically integrated and uh you know it turned out to be a great company we were Debt-free, multi-million-dollar company. We had wholesale clients all over the country. Um, we we were even shipping products overseas. We had about 60 retail stores that we owned, and then we had a number that were licensed to people like Marriott, Host Marriott. And so it was a successful, debt-free company. And uh, a buyer, a couple buyers, showed up and said, "Hey, we love what you're doing, and would love to buy you." So that was kind of my story. Yeah, and it's uh, a fabulous story, especially considering where it all started, the genesis of it. Uh, You know, you wanted to practice what you preached. You wanted to get some field experience, basically. Uh, But, you know, when you went to find your first retail space, uh, your landlord didn't believe in the product and would not... Uh, turn over the space to you, and but you were tenacious. And talk to us about that experience, what you learned from it, and uh, you know how do you reconcile what others are telling you? Because I know entrepreneurs who have had this experience too, and others who gave up because of the negativity and the bad feedback. But how do you know when you're hearing uh, bad feedback about a business idea, when to persevere? Well. You know, there are a number of steps you need to take to be prepared to launch what I call a true business opportunity as, as opposed to an idea. And we had taken all of those steps, and, and these steps are outlined in the book, uh, Main Street Entrepreneur. But we, we were very well prepared. We'd seen the concept mostly in California and a few other places. We'd seen the long lines. We'd uh, created the product. Uh, we had great feedback. People were very, very interested in eating a healthy product, but they didn't want to compromise the taste. We called it uh, the ice cream lover's yogurt to play <laughs> off the ice cream, the pseudo health food people as opposed to the serious health food people. Mm-hmm. And, but it was a great product. And we knew that we needed, you know, there are a lot of retail spaces. There are A spaces and B spaces. And we knew when we launched this, we had to be in an A space. It had to look like a spaceship came down and landed, you know. So we wanted lots of Italian tiles, and bright lights and chrome and, mm-hmm. and uh, brass. And so... We found a space uh, that came available in the top mall here in Utah, in Salt Lake City, and we went in and explained what we were doing, and the gentleman just kind of laughed and said, you know, no, that won't work. I've never heard of anything like that, and uh, or what works in California doesn't work here, and, you know, I, I knew it would work, and so I went back to him and said, listen, I'll write you a check uh, for the first 
three months rent, you know, $36,000 in advance because that's how confident we were. And he still wouldn't budge. He said, <laughs> you know, you're nice people, but um, sorry, we've, we've got to get something that we know is already working. And it's kind of a sad ending. He, he uh, passed away. He died suddenly, and they brought in a new a leasing agent, and she liked what we were doing, and we got the space. And so, you know, I always say, you, you know, you start at the very top. You go for the best space and don't compromise, even if it takes a little bit longer. And then once we were in that space, uh, we were seen by, you know, leasing agents and landlords all across the, you know, the area because it was right next to the uh, Temple Square, a very uh, highly trafficked tourist area. And it was very easy then to to go to other landlords and say, hey, this is working here in the Crossroads Mall. It's working very well. In fact, we were profitable for month number one, and here are the percentage rents we're paying. It was quite easy then to go ahead and get uh, spaces around the country. Yeah. Uh, well, once you've, you've uh, and that's true even of a franchise, you know, once you are able to prove the concepts, then you can go into other markets with it. It's all about proving that first one uh, a lot of the time. Let's talk about your book, Main Street Entrepreneur. That is, okay. the re- that is the result of you bicycling across the country and talking to 100 entrepreneurs throughout the United States and finding out what drives them and, and what their uh, secrets to success are. Tell us about that journey. I know that's an open-ended question, but um, first of all, why did you start it? Why did you decide to go? <laughs> why did you? Yeah, why did you decide? You could have called them up on the phone. Why did you so decide why, to bike it? Why were we crazy? Enough? Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, my my main concern. I've spent since I sold that company. I've spent my career the last twenty years really trying to help other people have the same experience that I had had. It was a phenomenal experience to build something, you know, from concept to uh, cash flow to profitability to selling to a publicly traded company. And it was just a highlight of my career. And I thought, you know, if I can do it, other people can do it. And my concern was in the last couple of years, you've probably seen a lot of the the data, but jobs are going away Mm -hmm. due to the acceleration of technology. So, we have a number of studies that are done by very reputable organizations by you know, the National Reserve Bank and MIT and uh, Oxford University, and they're looking at the trends in a variety of industries and showing that jobs are being eliminated due to automation. And so this is the first time in our history where we're seeing some you know, economic gains. We're seeing growth, but we're not seeing the company job creation. In fact, jobs are actually going down in the last five years, uh, corporate revenue has increased by about 20% per employee from $370,000 per employee to about $425,000. So anything that can be automated is being automated. So we see, you know, self-checkout lines and e-commerce, software is replacing accountants and analysts. We've got online courses replacing teachers. We've got drones. We've got smart cars. And primarily, we've got the development of robotics. Uh, robots, you know, 10 years ago in the auto industry cost about $200,000. Today, those same machines cost about $80,000. They cost about $4 an hour to run, and they typically replace about 20 employees. And this is happening in every single industry. And Oxford University looked at 702 occupations, and they said, you know, 40, we think 47% of these will be gone within about a decade. And, you know, we're this is another uh, fact that just uh, was revealed last month that we're outsourcing all these manufacturing jobs to China and the Chinese now are introducing robotics and the factory that makes iPhones, it's the largest 
production facility in China, uh, they just replaced 60,000 employees with, with robots. Mm. And so it's happening all over the world. And, you know, people are saying, hey, we're going to have this very huge unemployment rate. It could be 20, 30 percent. And we need to think through how we're going to handle that. Well, I'm, I'm not an alarmist. I'm a little more optimistic. We've handled these employment shifts before. Uh, we all used to be farmers, and now only 2% of us farm. And, right. You know, after World War II, 35% of us worked in manufacturing. Now it's less than 10%. And so we're going to be fine. But the concern is there's going to be this gap where all these jobs are eliminated, uh, manufacturing jobs, service jobs, uh, security jobs are, uh, are being eliminated through robotics. Uh, so, you know, transportation jobs, uh, shipping jobs. And so the concern is we're not going to create these new industries and these new jobs fast enough to, to bridge this gap. And so my thought was, well, let's go find people that have created jobs where there are no jobs. Uh, they moved to a place they love. They decided, I want lifestyle now. Uh, they maybe worked for large corporations and they moved to very attractive cities and they create jobs for themselves and they create jobs for other people in those cities and I thought these are going to be the role models to help us create a new career strategy and more the reality is more and more of us are going to have to become independent self-employed and be entrepreneurs and so we wanted really we were just driven by this desire to find these people uh, interview them film them tell their stories create some videos write a book and kind of be evangelists for this uh, for careers in the new economy that was what motivated me. And and what did you find as you talked to these people? What were some of the commonalities that you discovered? Well, we found uh, we we interviewed all of them and recorded these interviews. Uh, we filmed filmed them and then looked at hours and hours of, of tape. And we're looking for common common practices. We basically did a content analysis of the data, and we found nine nine things that kept occurring over and over again that were uh, present in a lot of these stories. And having worked with hundreds of startups, I know that. These things, if missing, uh, companies just aren't as successful. So these are the differences that make the difference. You know, there's many things you have to do when you start a business. Uh, you have to register your entity. You might have to lease space and so on. But uh, the keys to success are a little different than that. And so we uh, then outlined what those things are. And the first thing we noticed, which was, was kind of fascinating, is these people were all driven by a really powerful, engaging purpose. Uh, not one of the 100 people said, I'm doing this to make money. Money mm -hmm. just did not come up. You know, they're smart people. They know they have to make money to be sustainable. But uh, they were doing it because they wanted to live in a beautiful, smaller town. They wanted a different lifestyle for their family. They wanted to create jobs in that town. They wanted to do something they were very, very passionate about now in their career. They wanted to solve problems. Many of them wanted to contribute to their communities. And the cash they were producing was able they were able to use that to make a difference in their cities. And so they were very purpose-driven. And uh, the neat thing about that, you've probably read Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, but mm -hmm. he argues convincingly that people don't, don't buy what we do, they buy why we do it. Yeah. So these people were very clear at articulating in their city, hey, here's why I'm doing this. Here's why I'm in this city. And I want to make a difference. I want to create some jobs. And so the, the customers just rallied around these organizations and said, wow, this is fabulous. We're going to support you. And so being purpose-driven gets you through the hard times, the ups and downs of the startup. It attracts team members to you that have your same vision and values and purpose. And then it, uh, it really endears your customers to your organization. So that was one of the points that was uh, very obvious right from the first. Yeah. And, you know, 
as I was going over the nine points that you, or the nine concepts, I, I couldn't help but notice that many of them applied to your own story as well. For example, you use, um, well, the biking example that the companies that are successful are the ones who um, have others go along with them. You talked about attracting employees with your vision, but that when you try to go it alone, that you're constantly against that wind and so forth. Can you elaborate on that, that analogy? Yeah, another thing we noticed is that these people were um, you know, real honest and mature about who they were. They knew what they were good at and what they were not good at. And rather than try to go it alone, they would go out and find people to help fill in the gaps in their skill sets. And they did this primarily through building what I call a brain trust. They would go to anyone and everyone that had information that might help them to succeed and jumpstart that venture and save them you know, a lot of aches and pains. So if they uh, were not familiar with manufacturing, they'd go find someone to advise them in manufacturing. If they needed to understand you know, the UPC codes that you put on products, they'd go find someone that could do that. If they needed help with social media, they would find someone. And they were not shy about you know, saying, hey, I admire you a lot. You've done some marvelous things. I'm, here's what I'm doing. I'm excited about it. It would be an honor if, if I could uh, visit with you occasionally. They would meet them in the morning for morning runs or bike rides and try to make it real convenient to be with these people. They'd say, hey, you need to eat lunch every day. How about if I bring lunch over to your office? And so they were quite creative in enlisting a group of advisors or a brain trust that would you know, help them uh, be more successful than if they were working alone. They would also then build these great teams. They would bring people in that um, they hired primarily uh, based on character because in a, a small company, you can't hide a toxic person you know, deep in a bureaucracy. You're, you're kind yes. of stuck with that person. So they would find people with great work ethics and great character, people that believed in what they were doing. And, and uh, they were just masters at building these teams. They were building brain trusts. They were building teams within the company. And then they were really good at building strategic partnerships, linking mm -hmm. with organizations that could do things that they could not do. So uh, great puzzle makers, great team builders. Yeah, absolutely. And you did that in your own company when you, um, on the manufacturing side, you teamed up with another uh, company that became your co-producer, if I recall. I wasn't aware at the time of exactly what I was doing, but I found <laughs> great mentors and advisors uh, that knew real estate, that knew leasing, that knew construction. I put them on my board helped me grow the company. Uh, I created partnerships with, uh, you know, I used one uh, designer, one architect, one builder, uh, one producer, a co-packer of the product, and, you know, a couple key distributors. So we would find people that had common goals and, and negotiate great arrangements, uh, typically cost plus arrangements. We'd say, hey, we, we want to stay with you. We like you, but we don't want to keep having to track our pricing. Will you give us a cost plus contract? cost plus 8%, and we'll stay with you for three years or five years. Mm -hmm. And we just had this machine we built. That was, we were able to put out you know, 10, 15, 20 stores every year during our growth stage. So those relationships were invaluable to us. Talk to us about the community. You said that companies that lead with a clear purpose and that uh, go out into the community usually have greater success because there's that buy-in from the community. But, again, going back to your own experience, uh, you involved the, your customer base in your product growth, uh, and, and I loved the way, way you did that. You actually had these taste tests and contests, and talk to us about how a company can uh, in, engage their customers and make the customers feel ownership of the company and in the decision-making of the company. 
Yeah, we've observed over the years with all the startups uh, that I've worked with, that our team has worked with, that there's kind of four levels of service. Uh, the lowest level is that we tolerate our customers. And I actually had a manager of a you know, a chain, large chain, uh, she said to me, this would be a great place to work if it weren't for these customers. <laughs> and so you're, go- you're going oh nowhere. Goodness, That's yeah. your philosophy. <laughs> you know, level two then is quite popular. Hey, let's meet our customers' needs. So we're going to do everything we can to find out what they expect when they come here, and we're going to meet those needs. And that's great, but meeting needs doesn't create create excitement or loyalty. Those customers will shop somewhere else. So it's the higher level uh, levels of service. Level three is to exceed needs, and level four is to actually include your customers into the community and have them feel like your business is their business. And so that's what we tried to do. We always exceeded needs. We found out what people expected from a business like ours, and then we figure out how to give, always give them more so when they left, they would say, wow, no one does it like this. These, these people are phenomenal. But at the highest level, we would uh, get customers together every month in Salt Lake City and in Phoenix and Las Vegas and California, and we would bring our products to them, and we would say, hey, here's what we're thinking about doing. What do you think? And we would do blind, uh, double-blind taste panels, would give them our product and other people's product, and uh, they would... Uh, evaluate those products on a variety of dimensions and until we had these partners saying uh, with 70% of the vote that ours was the better product, we never went to production. So they actually helped us. Our customers created our product line for us. And so we were so confident if we ever went to any taste samplings or, you know, leasing agents, we could give them our product and others and we would always win. And it was because the customers, we just, you know, we were painstaking at doing this. We just would not produce anything until the majority of the people, seventy uh, percent or more, said, "Of all these things you gave me, this is the best one." And so uh, we gave these customers these VIP cards to thank them. They got half price for an entire year, and they would bring all their friends and their neighbors and their scout troops and their school classes and lay down that VIP card. And they were so impressed that, "Hey, I helped create this. I'm mm-hmm. part of this company." And so they were our best opinion leaders, really. Absolutely. The last thing I want to talk about, because we're not going to get through all nine points and people are just going to have to go get your book to learn about that. But I did want to talk about the multiple revenue streams that one of the key ingredients uh, that you discovered in, in being able to have a sustainable, successful business is to have multiple revenue streams. Now, um, that would seem contrary at times to some people who advise, some, some business experts who advise, focus, 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 get good at really one thing. So, so what do you mean by multiple revenue streams and, and how do you counter it against the people who advise to focus? Yeah, the best companies that we have found uh, have three, four, five sources of revenue. They're not just doing one thing, but they're not scattered. They're not chasing every, every shining thing they see. So they're not doing a restaurant over here and a construction company over here. <laughs> yeah. They're building revenue streams around their common uh, core skill set. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they launch a product and put it into a market and they really refine it and they maybe pivot a few times until they're gaining traction and they're producing great revenue. And then what they would do, the first pivot is, okay, now we've got all these customers that really like us. We've got this channel distribution well built. What else might these customers buy to solve the common problem they're trying to solve when they come to us? So are there other places they might be going after they go to our business to solve some problem and can we provide that same product? Uh, another way they pivot, so once they start adding to their product line to serve their same customer base, uh, the next move is, okay, are there other markets that might buy these exact same products? 
And so they're not jumping all over mm-hmm. the place and scattered. They're they're juggling just a few balls, a handful of balls that all fit, you know, into this same space. And then a third move we saw often is that say, gosh, I got all these resources. I've got a team. I got cash flow. I got a building. Uh, is there anything else related to what we're doing that we could spin off with these resources? Mm-hmm. And so an example, um, Benny and Julie Benson uh, were engineers. They moved from L.A. to Sisters, Oregon, and they started designing uh, biogas power plants. That was their expertise. And they had a number of clients come back to them and say, hey, it's hard to find people that can build these things. They're kind of, you know, they're kind of unique. And they said, well, hey, let us build them. So they spun off a construction division. So now they're designing the plants and they're building the plants. And then the customers said, hey, it's kind of hard to monitor the output of these plants. Uh, Can you help us with that? So they designed a suite of software that will monitor these plants remotely from their offices in Sisters, Oregon. So now they're designing the plants, they're building the plants, and they're operating the plants. So they're solving the customer's total problem in one stop. The customer doesn't have to go find a builder and doesn't have to go find a manager. And then the interesting thing, they were flying in and out of Sisters, Oregon so much, they bought the airport. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And then they put up some space for other entrepreneurs to office at the airport. So, you know, they built, they design biogas plants, they build the plants, they manage the plants. They lease space and they operate the airport. Wow, what a story. Uh, And we saw that over and over again, that they had, you know, multiple streams of revenue. Their success was not reliant upon one single product uh, or product line. And uh, it was kind of like a portfolio, like you look at a stock portfolio. They had, you know, those things they were really pursuing that were making the revenue and a few that in the middle they were just holding on to. But they would mm -hmm. let those go that, you know, had just run their course. They tried to hang on to things that weren't working. Sure. And most of them were also investing in real estate. They were buying their buildings or their offices or their warehouse. And uh, mm-hmm. so they had some business, of them were leasing yeah. space. And they were just build, building wealth uh, strategically mm-hmm. and soundly. Yeah. So they also had physical out assets as well. You know, this has been fascinating. Uh, the book, Main Street Entrepreneur, is also, well, it's available on Amazon.com, right? Uh, yes. All the websites, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh it's available all the sites and in many of the bookstores around the country. Okay, and you also have a podcast yourself. And uh, where can we go to access? Because this has taken many forms now. Uh, where can we go to access all those resources? Yeah, we're we're doing a full length documentary. We have podcasts. We're again trying to become thought leaders in this space of independent self employment, uh, long term security. And the site is called themainstreetentrepreneur.com. Okay, the MainStreetEntrepreneur.com. Go check it out. You can order the book and and find out all the other resources that Mike has to offer out there. Uh, great discussion. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks so much. It was a privilege to be with you. And if you'd like to learn more about how to grow your business, please visit our website at IThinkBigger.com. Follow us on Facebook, Thinking Bigger Business Media, or on Twitter at IThinkBigger. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.